Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Oval Roach. Ninety-nine zero nine. Mr. Producer, a, are you there? It's a it's a strip sack. Brady Brady has lost the ball. The ball is on the ground, and the Eagles have recovered. Oh my lord! Are we a little are we a little too early? Are we a little too early in the show to be uh to be getting crazy on that one? Oh man, what a what a game! But yes, anyway, yes, the show. Welcome back, welcome back, Mr. Host. How are you? How are you feeling today? Good. Ready to go? Yep. Good. Yep, beautiful. Yep, yep. Beautiful All stuff. Right. Well, I guess we'll just have to briefly talk about the Super Bowl. So let's get it out of the way. <clears throat> yeah, let's. So I have to ask you. The uh, the obvious question, uh, which is, what do you do in your position when you've got the hated Patriots by basically everybody who's not a Patriots fan and a Philadelphia Eagles team that sits as a much-hated rival in your NFC East division? I have to be very careful of what I say because... I'm not sure if I'll be able to delete it after I say it. (laughs) (laughs) You were rooting for the Eagles. Oh, no. Oh, absolutely not. Okay. Okay. I was placed in double jeopardy. I don't don't hate the Patriots. I just was tired of the Patriots. I don't hate them. However, in watching Tom versus Time, I don't know if you've been watching that. Tom versus Time. Uh, It's it's uh, like an... Yeah, it's like an internet thing that he's doing on his. On, I've been watching on YouTube, not on Facebook. Okay. But yeah. Um, yeah. You know, after what I've been, I'm like it's up to episode five. Gives you a little bit of, uh, different look at him. And sure. In the sec in the second episode, he near the end he ends it with something I think that's like right on the money, and that he says he is sacrificing his life. To be the best, so you better be sacrificing yours if you want to beat me. So okay. I thought that was a great quote. Anyway, under no 
circumstances will I ever, 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 <laughs> ever, ever, ever root for the Philadelphia Eagles. So okay. If, I, if a gun was put to my head, I would have been rooting for the Patriots. But now that the Eagles have won, I will forever have to listen to Eagle fans because now that they won one Super Bowl, for God's sakes, now we can't use against them. Let, you know, come back to me once you've won a Super Bowl at least. Right, right. Now they've won. Now they've won one. That's, you know, that's okay. I actually, I assumed, I didn't text you the day of, but I assumed that that would be in that one game your rooting interest because I remember how I felt when the Patriots played the Seahawks, obviously, and this is uh, back when the 49ers and Seahawks, I think they were in the NFC Championship game that year, Mm -hmm. um, and there was not a chance, not a snowflake's chance in hell, as the saying goes, that you were going to catch me rooting for the Seahawks. So I feel the same way. Okay. So, so uh, it was a great game. Great game. was a great fans, game. Fans, for hardcore fans and casual fans and non-fans, it was a very entertaining game. It was indeed. And then that reminds me one more question before we uh, escape the topic of the Super Bowl. What's your whole take on this Malcolm Butler controversy? Well, I haven't heard the latest today. But I would be I will be very interested in knowing what the real story is behind the scenes as to why he didn't play. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I don't know if uh, Belichick's got he, that big he, of an he, ego, he, but he wouldn't have made he wouldn't have made a difference. You don't think so? No, no, no. They were overmatched in the front seven. That that could be true too. That could be true too. Yeah, yeah, there was not a lot of pressure going on. But and, I don't know, interesting, because the Eagles receivers were having a field day. And so were the Patriot receivers. But ultimately, the game was won by the front seven making a play. That's true. So That is true. All right, well, more to, more to be revealed when that story yep. comes out. Moving right along. Yes, sir. I got some very interesting information. So Blog Talk, other than uh, Mr. Producer had a very good uh, joke <laughs> Careful. before the show that gave us, <laughs> gave us both Careful a hearty now. laugh. Because I told him about uh, Blog Talk came out with some, they have some new tools that are available to podcasters that provide some statistical data um, for you. And some of it is interesting. Some of it I can't figure out yet. Um because it's not making mathematical sense, but still good information anyway. So it's able to break out where your listening audience is coming from by country. Okay. Um, so I'm just going to list the countries and the percentage of l- listens coming from that country. It doesn't add up to 100%, so I'm not sure how they it, – it's, it's more than that. So I'm not sure how this works. I'm still, I still have to dig further into how they're doing this, but it's still interesting data to me. So Argentina, uh, less than 1%. Colombia, less than 1%. South Africa, 15.21%. Australia, 1.19%. India, 2.38%. Pakistan, 1.02%. China, 0.89%. So less than one, less than 1%. They don't want anyone listening over there. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> Greece, 
0.19%. The Czech Republic, 1.03%. France, 0.89%. The Netherlands, 2.4%. Denmark, 2.46%. The UK, I got a bone to pick with them, 1.19%. Really? After all we've done for you from from this country? <laughs> right? <laughs> Ireland, 2.59. Leave it to the Irish to step up their game. Canada, 13.58%. USA, 91.66%. Now you see where it doesn't make mathematical sense to me. New Zealand, 2.38%. And the Philippines, 1.09%. Now, I'll ask you, but I'll tell you mine. Which one do you think I found the most surprising? Well, the one I was going to comment on... Uh, and then just decided I'd let you finish the list was South Africa. Yeah, yeah, that is surprising, but that's not the one that jumped out at me. Because the one that did, ju- you, did you say South Africa was somewhere close to ten percent, like eight, like fifteen point two one percent. Fifteen, yeah, yeah. That that would be at least the surprising one for me. Okay, so I'll tell you why that wasn't surprising to me because there are a couple of podcasters that I listen to that are podcasting from programs in that locale. Okay, all right. So that kind of tells me that there is there there is a treatment, you know, environment over there somewhere. Okay, okay. Well, then that would make sense. So the one that's surprising for me, and, and it's surprising in a disappointing way, I thought there would be more listeners from the Philippines because we have a lot of connections in terms of not only people we've worked with over the years, but um, yeah. it's just been a relationship between the two uh, in regards to treatment and recovery. So I was kind of huh, surprised okay. that that was low. Um, but anyway, I just thought it was interesting information in terms of uh, where we're getting our listenership from I I don't know what the time frame in is if the last thirty days are just in, cumulative or what I haven't dug into that yet but I will do that. <clears throat> huh? Yeah, that is that is fascinating stuff for sure. I remember I was looking at uh, some of the data before this show actually, and uh, noticed like a huge spike like on one of the dates or one of the shows. I guess it may have been, and so I'd have to go back and look to see what that even was, but it. Um, was reminiscent of like a huge stock market bubble where like the the graph the chart looked pretty even keel throughout and then all of a sudden there was a there was an epic mountain. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. I have to look at that to see. Again, I don't know if that's a particular show or just a cum- you know cumulative time frame where where there right. was just a, a high number of listens. I have no idea. So that's that. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. Keep the data coming. I, you know, I might say, well, boy, I don't want to get us in trouble already, but uh, I, I might say maybe a little more focus on the fundamentals and a little less focus on the, uh, you know, getting way out there on a limb to, to give us information. <laughs> that's uh, maybe not as necessary as just keeping us on the air, but. We don't need to know what's going on in China. We need to just stay stay on the Internet. That's it. That's it. But all right. Well, good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. What do we uh what do we have in store for today? The chronic relapser. Apologies if you hear me chewing on candy, but the chronic P- relapser. 
Pips, that's right. Still got my Pips. Um, I'm going to just warn people in advance that this is, in just reviewing this topic, um, even in my own mind, thinking about it, I was bouncing around to so many different things. And I also have some information from this great article that I read. And just for context, those in the field are aware of uh, Counselor Magazine. You ever heard of that, Mr. Producer, that magazine? Uh, I've heard the name floated out there. I don't believe I've ever uh, read one, but... Okay, Okay. so I've saved almost, almost, not all, but almost every issue Um, because it's good to to read but I'll talk about that some more. Anyway, this the this the gentleman who wrote this article that we're going to touch on a little bit or a lot depends uh was December 2009. So it's some time ago. But the reason I I saved these magazines cuz the information is all relevant. But with that said, the chronic relapser um one of the things I want to do first is give a historical view of the chronic relapser because I think it will provide some context. All right. You do know back, you know, back in the day, back, 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 the, re- the, the, the chronic relapser or just the relapser, the person coming back into treatment, at least from what I've heard, what I may have seen on occasion – was not greeted with the most welcoming arms. <laughs> <laughs> no, quite quite the opposite, in fact. But, yes, I do know exactly what you're saying. I think the attitude was more, you got a lot of nerve for how dare yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, who do you think you are coming back? Um, now, I, I do have to add, at least for me personally, I was never taught that. And I wasn't trained that way, but in my experience as a client, seeing others and talking to some old timers who talked about their experiences and things they've seen, I mean, it was something else for you to dare, dare come back after you've gone through treatment and whether, I would say this, you would only escape it if you were there only for a couple of months. But if you put some quality time in and or completed treatment and or graduated and ended up coming back, boy, they had something waiting for you. Now, I think we can safely say today <laughs> that that might not have been the best practice in terms <laughs> right. of uh, treatment. But it it is what it was, and people just adapted to what it was. You know what I mean? It's we can't look back now and say, oh, we shouldn't have done that. No, it it was what it was, and that's that. Right. We grow. I we think mature. I'm actually I think I'm actually going to put you on the spot at some point here, uh, and. I, I've got an analogy in my head, but I'll, I'll wait for you to continue the topic and bring it up when it's appropriate. But remind me, because I think this ties perfectly into something that I've been thinking about recently. So, 
Okay. So as I was saying, you know, we grow, we mature, we evolve. Um, so in theory, and I hope in practice, we don't do that anymore. So that's kind of the historical historical view of how they the, the people coming back into treatment, whether they were chronic or just coming back for the first time. Now, there there was an issue with the person coming back into treatment. And this is my hypothesis based on what, I've, what I saw and what I experienced with, with clients coming back. There was a time during the Daytop era and I think some parts, early parts of the OCG era, that people who would come back in sometimes had an air or attitude about them. Almost of of entitlement that, you know, you know, they, they got dropped off in the caddy. Yeah. Had 17 pieces of Gucci luggage plunked, <laughs> down, in, plunked down in the front area as if they was checking into the Waldorf or the Hyatt. <laughs> and they would, until they were checked, almost believe that they would have this route, direct route to staff because of their previous engagement and experience. And so right, I don't have right. to participate with the peasants, you know, <laughs> i.e. the other clients. Because I've yeah. been here before and I know what's going down and I know what's happening and what's going around, I can, you know, socialize and mingle with the staff team and get my treatment air quotes from them directly. Hmm. So we would have to, of course, check that immediately uh, and bring them down a notch or two to let them know that that is not going to happen. In fairness, this was more so prevalent in the JTOP era than in the OCG era. And even as I'm talking about it, the images of people are coming into my mind who uh, exhibited this behavior. And one of the things, this gentleman, his name is uh, Andrew Moynihan, he, one of the things he talks about is the person coming back into treatment, whether it's one time for the first time, I mean the second time or the 22nd time, that what's you know who are they so well it that's hard to actually define down into a, a singular identity but i know historically staff have looked at um those who have repeated treatment episodes not in the highest light. And this is what I mean by that, before I get misquoted, that how are we going to be able to help them? What is it that they didn't get? It's their fifth time. Maybe they should go somewhere else. If they, would, if they want it, they'll get it. 
they don't want it, they're not going to get it. And so those thoughts from us, i.e. the staff, I mean, whether we want to admit it or not, influences how we then move forward with this client. So one of the points he makes, and he makes a number of points, which I hope I'll get to them, all of them, is that the staff, the professionals, we have to be aware of our own attitude, our own bias towards the person who's coming back in for the second, third, fourth, fifth time so that that doesn't creep into how we're going to provide treatment services for them on a relational basis, you know, relationship basis. Not the the didactic treatment, you know what I mean, but the 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 one-on-one relationship building sure between staff and 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 the client. That 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 is not impacted in a negative way as a result of how you may view a particular person coming back. When in fact, we have to train ourselves to view each person coming back in the same light. I'll tell you what my light is and what I try and impose on 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 you know on others that this is what your light should be, or the, the light you should hold them in. Well, I'm just going to cover it now. Some people don't make it back. Very true. Okay. They either, and I'm primarily talking about adults now, they either get locked up for a long time or they die. They overdose or their their, their lifestyle is a contributing factor to their untimely death. So whenever I see someone, especially someone that I, that I recognize, I may have had you know uh, um, interaction with, and they are returning back into treatment, um, I'm warmly receiving them. And if it's not a literal hug, it's a figur- figurative hug in terms of how my, what my verbal, what my words are to them, which are usually, I am glad to see that you, you've come back. I certainly don't want to make them feel any worse than they already feel coming back into a place that they were once in that they now have to face, you know, it's pretty rare that they'll face the same clients unless it's a quick turnaround. But let's say a year passes and they come back in. So more than likely, it'll just be the staff that will remember them. No one that's in treatment will know who they are. But we certainly want to, um, at least this is, again, my personal perspective, but um, we certainly want to let them know that, okay, you're in a safe place, um, and let's figure out whatever we got to figure out. Um, but ultimately, I'm glad that you made it back because some don't. Many don't. Many are still out there doing what they're doing. So one of the things he talks about, I mean, another thing, he talks, like I said, he talks about a lot of things. He says, sometimes the chronic relapser will state, I didn't get it till I did it for myself. And that 
they probably didn't get it because they didn't want it. But when the time came that they did want it, that's when they, quote-unquote, got it. However, the person who has been an addict for much of their life usually does not possess a great deal of self-respect, self-love, or self-understanding at the point of entry into treatment, which is true. So our expectation of them shouldn't be that they're walking in the door gung ho ready and you know and and you know ready to get get this thing going. His argument for that is that and and I don't I won't say I disagree, I'll just say I have a different context for it. But his argument is that if someone comes in and they are gung ho for treatment and they're ready to get it and understand it and dig into it and so on and so forth, there's a question about whether or not they need treatment at all, or maybe they need just very short term or, you know, some, a 12, you know, program or, you know, outpatient or something like that. Do they really need an intensive residential intervention? Okay, I can see that. But the reason why I say I, I might have a different context is because I know many clients who've come in under that description who still benefited, benefited greatly from the therapeutic environment. They, they had to get out of where they were in order to get that recovery thing started. And it's sometimes it's very hard for people to get it while they're in it, you know, if, while they're in the belly of the beast. Sometimes you've got to be able to lift them out of there, plop them down somewhere else, you know what I'm saying? And so a different environment to get the engine started. It is very hard, and I commend those who are able to do it, that – and. Obviously, for us, where we're located here in Northern California, that's what we're doing, and that's what the clients that are in our program have to do because they don't have a going, a, a going 200 miles away up into the Catskill Mountains, away from the city option. All the programs are located in the, in the you know, urban, suburban area. So, so you've got to get it done in the belly of the beast. Nine and a half times out of ten. So fighting through that, fighting through, uh, I just commend them. Because it's, it's, it's not easy to do that. Now, what he wants to know by the way, we're going to name, the, uh, just for the sake of this discussion, the chronic relapser. We're going to call him Charlie, so I don't have to keep saying the chronic relapser, okay? <laughs> All right. And I'm hoping – I don't have a pop sheet in front of me right now, but we don't have a Charlie any, in any of our programs, so nobody will think I'm uh, talking about them. We, in fact, we have a Charles, but, uh, but uh, yeah, Charlie should be safe. Okay. And, and what is the, um, the feminine version of, uh, of Charlie? Watch it now. Uh, you know, I don't know. Carla, perhaps? No, that that would be Carl. Well, I don't know. No. Well, there's a Charlize. 
Okay. All right. The act. The actor Charlize Theron. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We don't want to get a. We don't want to get a, a. Have our show shut down promptly. So yeah, let's be careful with that. Um. So we'll say Charlena. <laughs> Charlene. Right. There you go. Charlene. There we go. I have a niece named Charlene. I should have remembered that. All right. So <clears throat> Charlie or Charlene comes back. Well, we don't do Charlene anymore, so we'll just stick with Charlie. Comes back into the program, and nine times out of ten, what do we hit him with? We want to know what happened, <laughs> who, what, where, when, why. Right. Exactly. You know, you got a sponsor. You had a you know relapse prevention plan. You know, why didn't you use these things, et cetera, et cetera? And an argument he's making is that we, i.e., the staff, may spend an inordinate amount of time to the point of frustration trying to get the answer to those questions, when in fact they may not know the answer. which highlights the reason why they're back. And this kind of hit home for me personally because I have to go back to, okay, well, what, what have I done when people have returned back into treatment? What have I hit them with in terms of trying to find out what happened? And I usually ask, at some point after they've settled, so maybe after the 48-hour mark, to try to let's let's go over what transpired from when once you left the the confines of the treatment environment. You know, let's go through it step by step, and the purpose of the exercise is is so we can can we pinpoint where there was a, a left turn made and, and where there should have been a right turn. Can we pinpoint where there was uh, a wrong decision made or inappropriate decision made when there should have been an appropriate decision or correct decision? So I'm not necessarily, this is just me, not trying to find out why you did or didn't do something. I'm just trying to pinpoint where the, at what point in time did it go off kilter? Especially if, you know, some people, that some clients that go through treatment, we kind of have an idea if through their treatment process, just based on their behavior and other things. Because we get a lot of people who complete, but completing treatment doesn't mean that you have siphoned up everything that you were supposed to. That's so very some, true. Yeah, some who complete and go on, we may say, you know... Just based on what was going on with them in treatment and everything, we can tell that they, they, they kind of didn't stay focused and kind of missed some things. And hopefully it doesn't come back to bite them. does. And those clients return, I don't think we move automatically to, okay, what happened out there? It's like kind of let's, let's roll further back while you were in the treatment environment. Did you miss something here or, you know, what happened? So maybe we don't have to get the answer to why you didn't do A, B, and C, but I think we do have to find out when things, at what point did, did things start going 
the wrong direction. Because if we don't know what, at what point, we don't know where to start from. Because not everybody needs to start from scratch. Now, if you've been out there five years, it's a different story. We're going to start from scratch. Yeah, it's been lo- it's been long enough. You're coming back a completely <laughs> different person. <laughs> um. Does our frustration with Charlie, as we just stated, stem from an attempting to provide explanations for what he claims or states are accusatory and shame-inducing questions? And I'd like your opinion on this, Mr. Producer. So I know the questions he's talking about, but I don't think it's what we ask. Because, again, we're, we're not asking, well, why didn't you call your sponsor? Damn it. We're not asking that. Okay. Because when you're in the throes of craving and whatever is, you know, what's, whatever is driving that craving, what, what's driving that? Because if we don't get to that, the source of, of that, then we're not going to address the craving. And then if we don't address the craving then it doesn't it doesn't matter ultimately. They're just gonna to continue to have the cravings and what's gonna happen is gonna happen. And to my understanding, Mr Producer, correct me if I'm wrong, they have not yet invented a drug that cures the craving. Not as far as I know. But I, I could tell you, if wrong. you and I could, I could somehow come up with that, we we could make we could stand to make a lot of money. Well, you've heard it from Mr. Producer himself that he's out to make a buck off the backs of our uh, <laughs> those we're trying to help. So instead of putting it out there for free, he will monetize it, go public with his company, cash out a billionaire. And move to Hollywood. Just kidding. I like the sound of it. I like the sound of it. <laughs> so, I'm pretty certain we don't ask the shame-inducing questions and the accusatory questions. I do know, back in the day, top days, old school days, they definitely were asked. Yeah, sometimes it didn't really come in the form of just uh, like a straight-up interaction where questions were asked, but like you'd be handed uh, the dreaded yellow pad and be asked to essentially write a novel about it. Yep. So another point that he raises, which I think is an interesting point, how do people like Charlie normally – Um, perform in the treatment environment. And he makes the argument that more often than not, and I I agree with this, and you've seen them yourself as a producer, that many of the chronic relapsers do very well in treatment. Yeah, that tends to be something they're quite efficient at. They're enthusiastic. (laughs) They... They participate. 
they're engaged, they become some of your best coordinators and leaders uh, in the treatment environment. That's very As true. So they kind of do make up, um, I would think, kind of the stereotype. The flip side of that is, you know, we have on the other scale, the low scale, the client who has a like a depressive affect the majority of time, the client that you're concerned about because they don't seem to be coming out of their shell, they seem to be withdrawn um, for an extended period of time. And so you're concerned about how they're going to do if that affect hasn't changed when it comes time for them to, you know, leave the treatment environment. Well, I would agree with him in this, with the point that the majority of them are very good at at treatment. Very good. Yeah, I would I would absolutely agree with that. I also like the or I've always liked the dynamic, uh, for lack of a better term, of having um, an individual like this back in treatment uh, because they add a very kind of um, invaluable perspective to the milieu and the group setting, uh, being someone who's maybe been through the program or been through a program and had been doing well for a period of time and then suffered a setback. Um, you know, that kind of information to the client population who maybe hasn't experienced something like that can be, uh, you know, invaluable, irreplaceable. Absolutely. Question that's posed is do, do we think that the Charlies of the world know how we think and or feel about them. And his argument is that they do. And I would agree with that. And this goes kind of goes back to the treatment they receive when they return. And what is our, um, our, you know, our response to that? So he has a couple of uh, quotations here. Oh boy, here's Charlie again. I hope the <laughs> How about, does he? Uh, let, me, let me. I haven't. By the way, this is not pre-rehearsed. So the host had right. not told me about this article or what he has read. Does he have something in there, and maybe not verbatim, but something that touches on the the "I told you so"? Uh, you know, this it's close. There's oh, <laughs> oh boy, oh boy, here's Charlie again. Or I hope the boss doesn't give him to me. Put him on my caseload. Did you see Charlie? He's back for his spin dry. Or (laughs) Charlie's here for his three hots and a cot. Oh, boy. So, you know, those are some of the attitudes that have been around. Yeah. I I asked the other one because having worked in the field for as long as I've worked, I I definitely know even if – and staff, right? Staff, counselors, therapists, we're all humans, too. Uh, and so, you know, there's something to be said about you needing to cope with however you might feel. And I think you said it very eloquently, and you probably uh, derived this from the article that the doctor was making the point that we need to be aware of ourselves and how we feel about client X returning. Uh, and so I know 
behind closed doors maybe where, you know, this is where staff might have a chance to vent that you, you can sometimes feel the theme at least of the, I told you so, like, uh, you know, I, I was absolutely against this person discharging when they wanted to discharge. Uh, they were going to do it anyway. And so that, you know, that feeling can be created. Um, which again, being human. Okay. If that's how you feel, you let that out with some of your colleagues, but you certainly do not take that then into the interaction with that client or into the community. You come out and you, you know, right back to whatever it is you got to do. Not only that, he makes two additional points just on this, this area. One I'm aware of already. And, and, and the other is a very interesting perspective that to me is very helpful to us as professionals. He says, what it takes an unbelievable amount of courage to come back into treatment. I was already aware of that. I've always told clients that do you know how strong you have to be to humble yourself, show humility, and and walk back through those doors. It takes a lot of courage to do that. So that I was aware of. But the other connecting point he makes is is that one of the things we don't look at, which I think helps our perspective, is that the person walking back in again, by them coming back in the door again, is saying to you that I trust you to help me try and get on this path and stay on this path, and that we should look at it as a privilege, and I agree, to that they are that they trust us enough to allow us to do that. Wow, you know that I am so happy you shared that uh on this show with the listeners and even with me because I have never looked at it from that angle. Now, I've not been I've never been the type of counselor or staff member to hold this feeling against somebody who's coming back for a second or third time. Wait a minute, um, always, wait, a minute, wait a minute. Didn't you have to go to daytop re-education camp? <laughs> what? <laughs> no. No, sir. You no, you're, you're slandering the, you my caught, good name on this show. You caught a taste <laughs> of the old school training. <laughs> oh, <just laughs> that's, no, that's true. That's true. Uh, no, yeah. So I, I've never personally been, been that type to, um, you know, do anything other than, hey, welcome somebody back. Let's go, man. Let's make it happen. We've actually mm-hmm. had a handful of those in the past year. Um, right. And sometimes I'm excited to see the individual, not that I'm happy that they're back, but you know what? I, re- I recall enjoying working with this client and let's see, you know, what we missed and let's see if we can't uh, make up for it this time, you know? Um, but that point, I've never thought about it from that angle. And that is a, that is a powerful statement because having gone through the program already, going out and then experiencing whatever they've experienced to bring them back and choosing essentially um, to come back to the program where there are several other options is a profound statement, kind of uh, unspoken that like, you know, I've spent time here and while I was here, I recall getting this or feeling this or, or having this outlook on this program and um, being back kind of speaks to that. And I never looked at it from that angle, but that's a, that's a pretty, it's a pretty powerful way of looking at it. He he emphasizes the courageousness of 
the Charlies of the world exhibiting an unbelievable desire to live in the freedom of recovery with a question mark. How do we know that that's the case? They keep coming back. It was this past Friday I held a group at the residential facility and I talked about how it doesn't it doesn't make a difference whether you you get it on the first try, second try, third try, fourth try, fifth try. It only matters if you stop trying. And I talked about, you know, years ago how many directors were all throughout Daytop that had didn't achieve their recovery until the fourth attempt at treatment. Yep. So imagine if they, you know, after the second one or after the third one, they like they gave up, but they didn't go back for the fourth try to try and, and make it and stick, make it stick. So he says, so we know that they have a, a desire to to live in the freedom of recovery because they keep coming back. But ultimately, the Charlies of the world have a problem getting sober because they've proven they can get sober. What they have a problem is with is staying sober. Sure, sure. Or staying in recovery. They leave treatment with an aftercare plan, relapse prevention plan. And along the way, as they're struggling to stay sober, they they face whatever legal hurdle, you know, legal issues that are still hanging out there, you know, financial issues, especially in this day and time where we, you know, where we live in either New York, California, as a matter, cost of living is high. Trying to find your own place now is almost next to impossible. Um, you know, family issues that that, that aren't quite resolved yet. Um, health problems. If you are a long-term addict, you know you're out there a long time. You weren't taking care of your health, and now now that you are, you know, drug-free, and you're you know you're trying to do the right thing with your health. There's some health issues that you now have to maintain, you know, address or stay on top of. Spiritual, you know, definement. Yep. So. They go out with all of these issues that even back in the day when people were staying in treatment for, you know, a year, 15 months, 16 months, et cetera, um, that, you know, would still leave with some of these things unresolved and, and not, quote, unquote, nailed down. So you can imagine now. <laughs> I don't even want to think about that, but... <clears throat> Another point that he makes is that Charlies of the world experience life very differently than most folks. Analogy that it's not like a combat veteran experiences life differently based on their experiences in combat. Well, the addict, based on their life experience, experiences the life experiences life differently also. The question becomes, is that, are those experiences, and, and I guess it depends on how long did I experience the addictive lifestyle, addiction lifestyle, but 
Am I in treatment long enough? Is my intervention intensive enough that the, those life experiences aren't taken, like, they're not transposed, if you will, into my, 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 my new recovery life experience, and they're, like, sitting over them like a cloud layer, <laughs> like a layer of doom and gloom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, over, yeah. An overcast doom cloud just, like, sitting <laughs> over you. Yeah, it's like the uh, like the little. You remember the uh, Zoloft commercials from a couple years back, where there's like the little guy stick figurine walking around in his daily life, and his he's got his own little personal storm cloud that's following him. Right, right. (laughs) So the point he's making, if that is the case, you know, then then what what the Charlies of the world are doing is that they're, they're continuing to live, even though they might be in, in treatment or whatever, they're continuing to live their life um, as an addict. And their relationship and, and how they see other people are just a means to drugs or threats to their drugs. They place no value in and only vaguely recognize Concepts, stuff that we talk about that people need to be is it like a normal parts of life, like shopping, recreation, employment, having a career, uh, a, a positive home environment, being good parents, um, good a good family member, like if you have siblings, etc. Um, reading, writing, you know, doing whatever, going to the beach, doing what normal people do to have a healthy, positive life. Do they get engaged in that? One of the other things I talked about in the group is about people leaving treatment and either not having enough structure or having too much structure, not ha- not finding mm. a good, just not finding a good balance. Sure, sure. I always worry about people that have too much structure. Like that, because we we know what boredom does, but like they're right. trying to avoid, like they're trying to avoid experiencing boredom. So let me stay busy. Mm. Every waking hour, let me stay busy doing something. Yeah, and you can only you can only keep that up with for so long. Therefore, the Charlies of the world emerge from treatment with virtually every element of their life <laughs> in acute crisis with only their life experience to help them deal with what is facing them when they leave treatment. And that's all that they know. That's their life experience. So he asks a very profound question. What seems a mystery is why the Charlies of the world keep showing back up for treatment even though their experience has been that, quote-unquote, they haven't succeeded. Why do they keep showing back? Especially if, if we don't subscribe to the, the, the stereotypical reasons that we mentioned before about, you know, three hots in a cot, he's back for a spin dry and all that stuff. And the amount of treatment episodes that this person has had if you do subscribe to that thinking then 
them coming back into treatment is not a mystery. If you don't subscribe to that that thinking, well, let me continue that point. If you do subscribe to that thinking that they're only coming back because it's three hots in a cup, they're only coming back because they want to dry out, they want to, you know, well, we're not a detox, but they, you know, they want to detox and just, just clean themselves up for a little bit and so they can, you know, go back out into the world, etc. If if that's the belief, then it's very easy to expl- uh, to explain their behavior. But the side effect of that, the collateral impact, if you have that kind of thinking as a staff person, as a professional, is that your job, frustrating as sad as, sad as that is, is redefined as impossible. Which brings me to another point, which I'm sure you've heard me mention sometimes in, in over the years in a staff meeting about where, when you get to a point as a professional in this field, when you don't think you're having, what you're doing is not having an impact. You can't see what, you know, the, ben- the, the benefit of what you're doing. And that's more so now than, you know, many, many years ago when people were in treatment longer where you had the opportunity to see them when they first come in and see the gradual change take place right in front of you. So you, you can witness the impact of the treatment environment. And you know, and whatever effects you have or don't have on that, but you can just you can see the change in the person over a period of time, and to a certain extent or a large extent, you know, with the way treatment is now in terms of you know its segmented times, um, you may not, as a staff person, as a professional, get to experience that like you did years ago. And does that cause? the staff person to, 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 to today feel that more quickly than, than they used to in the past and, or question more quickly whether or not what they're doing is worthy, is important, um, is beneficial, and has a positive impact. Well, if you believe those things about why a client well, I would characterize them as negative and destructive things, why a client comes back into treatment, then that's what you're going to believe, that you're not impactful, you don't make a difference, it's, you're not beneficial, et cetera, et cetera. I hope that wasn't confusing that's a, in terms of just explaining the point he was trying to make. But we're aware of this point because we've lived it. So some of us have trouble understanding why a person comes into treatment three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times. Now, what do we? How do we, quote unquote, diagnose the inability for the Charlies to regain control of their life, implement the recovery strategies that we, you know, kind of put out there, and, and so on and so forth. Use the tools of the house that they've been practicing. Does Charlie, do, do they need more of this? Do they need more of that? Do they, you know, I mean, you know, we start thinking about, you know, well, what else can we do? You 
he claims the answer is probably yes to all of the above, a combination thereof. However, the Charlies of the word need, need to fully identify and understand why they want recovery. It's okay for them to want safety. It's okay for them to want, you know, a warm meal, a comfy bed with our Sealy Posturepedic mattresses. Or have we moved <laughs> over to the have we moved over to the Tempurpedic mattresses now? Uh, we're going full memory foam at this point. Oh, full man, memory right, foam. Memory, okay, memory foam. All right. They want physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual relief. Who wouldn't want that? After coming off a drug run. But they can get that a lot of places. They can go to shelters, detox, outreach programs, friends, family. You don't have to come into treatment, but they do. And here is a great point I have to emphasize this, that he made. For this, as a staff person, ask yourself this question. You know how difficult treatment is. It is a very hard thing for people to do. I, I often tell clients, we ask people to do something that is one of the most hardest things for a human being to do. Soul-searching, self-searching, hard for people to do that. But we say, we know all of this. We know it's hard. Why in the world would someone subject themselves to that just for a bed, just for a warm meal, just for a roof over their head? With all the rules and regulations and and the tight structure and everything they have to do and the groups and the this and the that, there's, there's many different places they can go. If that's if all they wanted was a meal, a roof, you know what I'm saying? Yep. But they come into a treatment environment where they're going to be asked to do things, comply with rules and regulations, participate, engage, etc. So they're choosing that over an easier route. Why is that? That's just a question mark hanging in the air. Why do they do that? Repeatedly. Doesn't need an answer. Just floating it as a question that we should ask ourselves to help us understand the chronic relapsers. Why would anyone voluntarily admit themselves to seven hours of treatment daily? Possibly not good food. We have good food, I think. Dorm-style living and comply with very strict rules, including homework, just to get food and shelter. The demands on an addict participating in addiction treatment are enormous. And as we said, soul-searching, self-searching, self-challenging, participating in groups where one is expected to be forthcoming and honest. Work with a clinician in individual sessions that require development of your treatment plan. You're talking about your strengths, your weaknesses, preferences, insights, etc., 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 
Then you got to worry about <laughs> your probation officer, spouses if you're married, children if you have them. So with all that going on, they choose to come into treatment. So I think knowing all that, we can come to the conclusion that it's got to be more than a person wanting a bet why they keep coming back. He refers back to the courage that it takes and the desire for sobriety. And the and what's what's motivating, and that is what he puts as the key for us, i.e., the, the professionals, to solving the Charlies. What's motivating him? So. He has, to me, I think is a great quote, which I'm going to tell you what I always tell clients, but he states it a lot more eloquently than I stated. So when someone has asked me over the years, you know, what's the hardest part of, you know, being a counselor and doing this work? I've always said the hardest part is trying to convince another human being that they can survive and thrive without using drugs and alcohol. So how he puts it is, simply put, motivating someone is an external effort to reach the individual's intrinsic motivational energy. So in essence, yeah, that's pretty good. Well, that's pretty yeah, well, well put. Right. It, we have to just understand that our, our what we should be doing or what what we are doing is trying to tap into what's motivating them, what their motivations are, and build on top of that, not transposing our own motivations onto them. You should you should do this because of A, B, C, D, and E. Well, those are our motivations. We don't know if that's what's motivating them. Right. Right. So trying to find out what's motivating them intrinsically, not, you know, uh, surface, obvious, you know, like, oh, the, co- the court sent me here, or, oh, my probation officer told me I better Right, right, yeah. Staying out no. of jail or whatever, right. Right. Intrinsic motivation and, ta- and trying to then tap into that and let that be we just build on that but that's what ultimately is going to carry them through because statistically it's been proven that uh you know the threat of jail and the threat has not worked for people because we know many people that with large prison sentences hanging over their head that relapsed the judge said i'm going to give you one more shot if you don't do it you're getting 15 you get you're going to you have to do the original 15 I would think, we've talked about this before, Mr. Producer, I would think that, shoot, if a judge told me, look, I'm going to give you one last shot. I'm going to, I'm going to you know, modify your sentence to a treatment program, and you've got to complete it. 
If you complete it, we're good. If you don't complete it, I'm sending you up for your 15 years. Yeah, so there's, need, <laughs> yeah no, not a whole lot well, for, more needs to be said. Thank you, Your Honor. Yeah, <laughs> I'll be he, seeing you in have, nine months. If he would have said 15 days, it would be the same reaction from me. Yeah, right? So we know, we, we have many, we know many stories of where they've been told seven years, 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, and they don't do it, and they're sitting in prison as we speak. So statistically, we know that that's, it, it has to come from within. Our challenge, of course, is tapping into that. Um, the other thing I want to just talk about, I know we're past the top of the hour, Mr. Producer, so we're just going to go a little bit long here on this topic. I want to just go back in time a little. By, by the way, don't forget whatever it is you wanted to speak on. You don't yeah, to remind yeah. you. Um, one of the things, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. E- even though back in the day, many, many years ago, the coming back into treatment as a relapser, you were not greeted with, uh, quote-unquote, welcoming arms. Okay, I don't want people to be mis to misinterpret that because it was tough love. It was tough love, and then it 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 closed the 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 initial welcoming experience was tough love, but closed with very warm love because when you were accepted back, when you heard those words, welcome you know welcome back. After they beat you up for a little bit, however long it may be, depending on who you were, it may have been 30 minutes or 90 minutes. But once they said those magic words, welcome back, everybody in the room hugged you. So it was almost a, you know, can you survive the tough love to get onto the other side of the warm love? So I don't want people to think that it was just all tough love, tough, 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 and that there was no warmness to uh, to the experience. There was warmness to it. Um, you just had to <laughs> you just had to get through the tough part of it, um, and and most did. They and lived to tell about it. <laughs> that's right. I'll leave, it, I'll leave it at that. Go ahead, sir. No, that's well said, and we pretty much covered it throughout the topic, but I, I remember um, it, it was funny. Thinking uh, this weekend, my wife and I were at a restaurant, and there was a, a little child, and I, you know, I, I can't, I'm not very good at guessing ages, but I want to say maybe he was five, uh, around five years old, and um, he was, for lack of a better term, he was having a temper tantrum in the restaurant. He he must have been told no or had something happen that he wasn't a fan of. And uh, he was kind of causing a scene, right? Throwing a fit. And I was thinking to myself, now I remember maybe being in the same boat when I was little and causing a temper tantrum in a restaurant. And uh, my grandfather at the time... Uh, laid laid the law down if you will and uh, took me outside of the restaurant and we'll just say that the parenting that took place was such that that was the first and last time I ever threw a temper tantrum in a restaurant 
Um, but the parents in this restaurant, in this case, were for the most part just kind of letting it go, letting it, letting the boy ride out. And I was thinking to myself, you know, it's funny. Some of the parenting tactics we would use back in the day uh, wouldn't necessarily fly today, right? There would be someone somewhere who would say that, you know, uh, have some sort of issue, take up some sort of issue with the parenting tactic. And so that has had to be adjusted um, to, you know, kind of today to, to what happens today because of the, the direction that the pendulum has swung in and the environment or the climate that is presented today within the context with what you have to work with. Um, and it just, that story popped into my head when you were talking about, um, you know, maybe how something, how the chronic relapser would have been greeted perhaps 15 years ago, as opposed to today. Mm -hmm. Uh, just interesting the way uh, approaches evolve, if you will. Mm -hmm. Well, I can give you a perfect example, just using my two daughters as an example, where um, I kind of know, reading between the lines of the parenting that your grandfather uh, engaged in, uh, <laughs> to sure. Im immediately halt your tantrum uh, <laughs> career. Um, exactly. Uh, neither of my two daughters uh, experienced a tantrum career during their toddler and, you know, late toddler years at all. Um, and, you know, their mother, my wife, and, and I, you know, kind of laid down the law and they had the fear of God of their mother. Um, and so, and, and and I come from a background of parents who would verbally discipline you no matter where you were. And that was horrifying to me. <laughs> didn't didn't Growing, matter the, the room or the people in the it room. It didn't huh? make a difference where you were. <laughs> you, you could be verbally disciplined. Okay? And that was, I mean, so that horrifying thought was enough to keep you within the confines of where you needed to be. Okay, <laughs> I and, the, the, to make the connection, the open door smoking haircut. Right. Since I didn't experience the public, you know, in the store type discipline and all that stuff, maybe one or two times. Right. And that was it at a very, very young age. So I didn't experience it too much. So it wasn't like I had the experience to then translate over to my, my daughter. So and they were never, quote unquote, physically touched. Okay, and they didn't have any tantrum career. Okay, so it can work in both fashions. So sometimes, if you appropriately instill the appropriate level of fear of the consequences, okay, it that's enough to impact someone's behavior. Oh yeah, especially the child, and but it has to be done. I mean, you got to be committed to it i mean committed because if you let one thing slide they got you oh yeah they got you because it's their job to test are you is, you know how consistent you're going to be and i told both of them as they entered this world i'm going to be consistent and after a while and you know their mother uh, <laughs> There, there was just nothing happening. 
Yeah, there was no, yeah. there was no getting over. I mean, I mean, so that's the beauty of uh, having girls. When you got that, that that mother that's that knows her business. That's, that's all there is to it. The father, it's a blessing. That's <laughs> all I can say. That's so it. They yeah, have two, two parents. So you put together two parents that kind of are committed to making sure that there is no tantrum life. You're not going to experience that. So you might as well just jump from being a good toddler right to kindergarten because you're not going to experience the terrible <laughs> two and three. That's right. Oh, yeah, consistency. That's funny. That is the approach, though. I, 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 I get what you're saying. And, and we do the same, uh, and I get your connection, your analogy, in the treatment environment. Even now, even though we are, my hands are in quotes, air quotes, we aren't, some people would classify as tough love as we were back in the day um it should not never be interpreted that that doesn't that means that you don't you don't still hold people accountable right hold people accountable your manner and methods may evolve and how you do that Mm -hmm. but you're still you still hold them accountable because people can never not be held accountable addicts can never not be held accountable. No, that is that is a foundation that that this this will be built on for the for forever and ever. Right. The means and methods may change, but the accountability is still necessary. Always there. Will always be present. That's right. That's all I can think of. So let's give credit again to Andrew Moynihan, Ph.D., L.A.D.C., I.L.D.C., KDAC, all these uh, letters. But great, great yeah. article that he wrote many years ago, um, but still relevant today about the chronic relapses and the Charlies of the world. Yeah, definitely a definitely a wonderful wonderful piece and a lot of good information for the listeners and. Uh, Staff, good to good to put it on. Yeah, good to put it on tape for the staff for sure. All right, sir. All right, all right. Well, uh, we do have a couple of callers on hold that I do see here, anxiously awaiting to participate in the recovery sport time segment. So, thank you all for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the topic to this point. We are going to get to the recovery sport time segment on the other side going to hit everybody with a nice little music break and we will take callers coming up in a minute Yeah. 
Coming up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you. Yes, and, indeed. And as the late, great Joe Williams would often say to me, I will now say to you, why don't you grow up? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. <clears throat> yeah, let's hit some X-Files. Got a stack here. What are we What are we looking at? I cannot read the name. All I know is from Las Vegas. I can't okay. see, tell if it says Holly or Molly. But uh, will I be able to date someone who drinks if I don't anymore? Mm-mm-mm. What do you think, Mr. Producer? I think that it is... Um I actually, I think it's a great question, and it's one that I believe we've covered um, in depth, or at least, if not as a direct topic, either in the X Files or in passing on another topic. Uh, but that that's absolutely okay, as long as you have very clearly defined boundaries of what recovery needs to be in your life in order for it to succeed. Um, and that that's that that's okay in within that context within those clearly defined boundaries if it's not then you know i might advise that you stay away from getting into a situation like that but um we don't get clean and sober for those of us who do to not enjoy life um and i always like your your elevator speech 
um, not not literally or, or what we think of as elevator speeches, but the analogy you give about being an individual who, if you are truly uh, kind of set in your recovery and have made a decision to make that change, that you ought to be able to ride an elevator all the way to the top floor with people using around you on the way up and you not engaging in the behavior. Absolutely. I echo your sentiments regarding the, the boundaries and of course, enforcing them. Um, Another thing is if one has to pose that question to oneself, therein lies the answer. In my humble opinion, if you have to ask that question, it's probably that more likely that you should uh, look elsewhere and enforce those boundaries that ever that seems to already be existing in the mind, if not a question in the mind already. But that is a great question which we do speak to periodically. Absolutely. Uh, let's go to the phones. We have Alfred from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hi, how you doing? Good. Um, okay. Um, I have a question, something that's been keeping me down. So um, how do I keep shame from sidetracking, for sidetracking me in my recovery, basically? Can you provide a little bit more context? I guess the stuff that I've been holding holding on to, guilt, a lot, a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, like with my actions and um, with the situations I put people in. Uh, there's a lot of guilt and shame, you know that 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 I don't know how to work with yet in my recovery. It seems like well, I know that it seems like there's an unwritten philosophy that states very simply, guilt kills. Yes, sir. So I would introspect a little bit meaning have a conversation with yourself to find out what is it that you are gaining benefiting from holding on to this guilt this shame what are you getting from it what are you getting out of it a lot of confusion a lot of sorrow more confusion more confusion and that's where that's when it, that's so, when so listen to listen ahead. to this. The key word that I said was benefit. What am I benefiting from? No, absolutely yes. nothing. No, you have to be benefiting in some way for you to keep holding it. We don't do anything that doesn't benefit us, emotionally or mentally. So if I'm holding on to this guilt and this shame, why am I holding on to it? What am I getting from it? There what has to be something. 
Go ahead. What if I'm so used to it? It's 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 what okay. I've been doing for years. Very good. And, so what does and, that and provide? I, what does that provide for you? It nothing. It doesn't provide. It provides. No no, no 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 no. Stay there. Stay there. It's not nothing. It's got to okay. be something. Not nothing. It's providing something. You said I'm used to it. I've been just, you know, so doing it so long. So when you're used to something, you've been doing it for a long time. What does that provide for you? Misery. None of, it provides. <laughs> okay, I'm am not. I, am I? Okay. I'm not. Don't think of it in a literal sense. Okay. Okay. Try and think figuratively here. So I'm going to kind of draw a picture for you. All right. You're used to it. It's something you've been doing for a long time. Okay? So what am I getting out of this? What is it providing for me? It starts with a C. I really can't tell you. Okay. So always think... When it, when it comes to holding on to negative and destructive feelings and when you ask yourself, well, why, why do I hold on to these things? Don't allow I don't know to be the answer. Don't allow that to, to, okay. to, to satisfy you. Try, dig a little deeper because a person usually can come to an understanding of what it is they're experiencing and why. If they're willing to dig. That's the key. If they're willing to dig, not everybody's willing to dig, okay? But if, if you're holding on to something that's negative, because you mentioned all the negative things that it brings to you, misery, yeah. you know, confusion, etc. okay? Those are the negative consequences of holding on to it. Those are the, those, that's not something that's making you feel good. So then why, why am I doing this? Why do you do that? There has to be something you're gaining that you're benefiting from holding on to those negative feelings. And you, you, you 75% answered it when you said, I'm, I'm, I'm used to it. Um, I've been doing it a long time. It's all that I know. And so I'm trying to push you that other 25%. By, by, ramming home, by ramming home on that side right there. When, you, when you're used to something and it's all that you yeah. know, you've been doing it a long time, you have some sense of what? Comfort. There you go. There you go. I'm comfortable. I'm used to it. At some point, at some point, the negative effects of holding on to those feelings has to outweigh the comfort. Okay. And that usually starts when you start digging into them. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've been, it, I've been doing it for so long. I, it's just, it, it is literally comfortable. <laughs> right. And, and you've been living in it so long. So now what you want to start the process of doing differently is not just living in it, is now digging into it. What are these feelings? 
where, where do they come from? What you know? How, how did I come into experiencing these feelings? Uproot them, so it becomes uncomfortable. Most of it comes from how I was raised. Ultimately, ultimately, the, that's an exercise for you. That's a, that's a personal exercise that you do. But what you will find out is ultimately you get to a point where, you know, the whys, the hows, and the details ultimately don't matter. It's getting an understanding of those feelings, those destructive feelings, those negative feelings, how they're sourced, and once you identify that, okay, what do I need to do to now put them in their proper place so I can move from that place to a different place? Those feelings no longer cause confusion, cause misery, cause all that negative stuff. I know what they are. I know what they feel like. I know why they've been present. I'm now moving from that to something different. All, you have to understand all of that stuff. It's not rocket science. You could do this. Just put it into see, practice. I see, put it into practice and make it a habit. Uh, make it a habit. That, that's what so I'm going to So I'm going to give you a challenge. I challenge you okay. with that homework of digging into those feelings. Maybe take just one or two of them, digging into them, getting underneath them, uprooting them, okay, and giving giving us a call back a couple of weeks, okay, and letting us know how did that how how was that experience for you doing that? Hold on, I'm writing this down. <laughs> All right, he's writing it down, okay. Mr. Producer. <laughs> That's good stuff. <laughs> That's how we take advice. I I need to. Okay. All right. All right. I appreciate that. All right. You're very welcome. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Mr. Producer? Yes, sir. That process that this gentleman has to go through, none of us get to escape it. We try very hard. But none of us get to escape that process. What changes as, as you go through the recovery process and you kind of learn that the process of, of, of digging into your, the feelings that have been plaguing you, the negative ones we're talking about, of course, and just the practice of doing that, you know, and eventually it just becomes a part of your everyday life in terms of, you know, just dealing with feelings that come up in your life, just from life experiences. You no longer stuff them and push them into a corner. You understand at some point with somebody that you have to vent them and talk about them, explore them, and so on and so forth, so that they don't have a negative impact on you. So couldn't, it's couldn't not, agree more. It's, yeah, it's not just for... Um, you know, addicts in recovery and so on and so forth. I mean, everybody has to do this. And I know people do it in various ways, but you still, everybody has to, to do this. Otherwise, the body just gets, in my opinion, gets overwhelmed. 
So, all right, back to the X-Files. That was a good call. Uh, there was one particular question that I you should see. My I got like 17 things out in front of me. <laughs> now I can't find what I'm looking for. Oh, man. I'm going to okay, screen had... a quick call right here. I'll be right back. Okay, all right. I'll find it. One gentleman, Luke from Marin, is asking, does treatment work better for men or women? I don't know if it works better for either. I can't say, you know, women do better, men do better, so on and so forth. Um, It's an individual thing. What I will say is that we already talked numerous times about how women are underrepresented in treatment. They still are, even more so today than yesteryear. Um, But statistically, I don't know what you say. This is just uh, anecdotally. Statistically, I think women, uh, maybe, I guess you're the damn mathematician, Mr. Producer, so maybe you would know, but um, maybe because of their smaller numbers, they might be more successful statistically. But if there's that could be the case. Out, <clears throat> yeah, knows? that could be the case. It's it's hard uh, it's hard to say because there could be a lot of variables in that situation. But, uh, the smaller the what you can say mathematically speaking is the smaller the sample size, the um, kind of like the greater uh, variance in the figure there's going to be, right? So, you know, if you have a sample size of two people and one succeeds, you got a 50% failure rate and a 50% success rate. Those feel relatively high one way or the other, but the greater that sample size becomes, the uh, the closer to the true figure you're going to get, and kind of like a bell curve type thing. I get you. All right, I found the question that I saw. Um I I I, I kind of laughed, not out of disrespect, I just out of the realness of the question. So this is Eric T from San Jose. And I'm going to read this in character. <laughs> Why is sobriety so great? Can't learning discipline be a better alternative? Also being clean and sober, now I <laughs> excuse me. Trying not to laugh. Now I have a lot more problems than I had when I was was using. Sobriety didn't seem to solve my problems. Why? (laughs) Oh, Eric, 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 Eric. Um, I think we've said it on this show numerous times, and I am absolutely certain we make it crystal clear to people walking through the front door that one thing that's not going to change is your problems. That's right. What will change, Eric, hopefully, is, hopefully, is that you will be confronting your problems of sound mind and sound body rather than being under the influence or being in the grips and throes of addiction. One can better solve their problems with a clear head, being in a positive state of being, than in the grips of addiction. There's no debate about that one. So if you were under the mistaken 
illusion that just because you are now sober, that whatever problems you came in with, external problems or what have you, that those didn't magically disappear, it tells me one of two things. <laughs> we need to uh, we need to find the thing that makes them magically disappear. That's the real secret. Is that another one of the your billion dollar uh mon- <laughs> did you going to monetize and yes. move to Hollywood? Exactly, exactly. So it tells me one of two things. One if if Eric is just out and about right now that if that's his mindset that he's existing as what we would call a dry drunk. So thing he's not doing is using, but it appears, and it's just by parents' sake, that he did not sufficiently address the issues that he have brought into uh, treatment with him. So if he's now clean and sober, but my problems are still there, and we're not talking about external problems. We're just talking about if he's speaking to, you know, personal problems and and emotional issues, mental issues, and things of that nature. These things can be resolved in the treatment environment if we attack them appropriately. Um, Or at the very least, we can establish a foundational um, jumping point. But if you choose not to touch on them, bring them to light, speak to them in any way, shape, or form, then, you know, what you came in with on your back is leaving with you on your back, regardless of what kind of work you do here. Work meaning, you know, if you, you, know, if you do your program, quote-unquote. But whatever is left untouched that needs to be touched is you know, leaving with you. So I always used to say, mostly to the adolescents, as they were, you know, leaving out on their journey to continue teenage dumb. Yeah. I said, don't leave this facility, you know, for the quote unquote last time and not have resolved or touched on or at least built a jumping point foundation for all the issues that you brought to the table when you walked in the front door. That's a disservice to yourself. While we're on that subject, I just remembered something from that article that's kind of connecting to this. One of the things that he spoke about was, and it's a very interesting thing because, you know, today, or not today, it didn't start today, but maybe you'll say 10 years ago, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. Producer, 10, 15 maybe, how we did treatment planning changed a little bit or a lot. Okay. And really incorporating more of the clients, you know, what they wanted. How did they see oh, yeah. their their recovery and their treatment? What did they want to focus on, concentrate on, et cetera, et cetera? Oh, yeah, and completely was, client-driven versus right. I'm going to tell you what needs to be in your treatment plan and this is what you need to work on. Now the client is essentially 
writing the treatment plan. They're just transcribing essentially what the therapist is going to write in there. Right. So he makes a very interesting argument in stating how in the world are we to ask an addict walking in the door to be able to, you know, tell you these things that, that, that you need to know to write an effective treatment plan. Their, their heads are just coming out of the, the fog. So he wasn't directly making a case for, you know, quote unquote, more staff involvement, 60, 40, 40, whatever. He wasn't making that case. He was just raising the question, I guess, for uh, thought, just a food for thought, so to speak. I'm not sure why I thought of that right now, but anyway. All right, let's go back to the phones. Who we got? We got uh, Michael from Redwood Shores. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. You're welcome. How can we help? Are you there? Oh. Yep. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, What is the um, best way for me to control anxiety? Well... Me and Mr. Producer are neither one of us are doctors, so I'm going to take it as a very general question. Okay, okay. You don't mind? All right. No, that's fine. What are you anxious about? Um, you know, it's a that's a good question. About, just about everything. I I walk through the fear on one, and there's one standing right behind it. So whether it be um, um, succeeding in life, money, judgment of friends or peers, um, I guess you can just say day-to-day life. Um, I don't know. I don't know how much information you want to hear from me, but I, I kind of grew up in the special education system, which kind of adds to my anxiety. In what way? How does that add um, to your anxiety? Fear of failure. Uh, my whole life, I've always felt that um, I was like the one behind, and kids are brutal in school, so they don't really help. <laughs> okay, I'm going to give you an exercise, some homework. Okay. We're going to do first things first. You're going to take a blank piece of paper. Okay. You're going to draw two lines to create three columns. Okay? Okay. Mr. Producer, how much? Okay, how much time do we have? I always lose track of time. Uh, we're good. We got about okay, five or okay. six minutes. Okay. All right. Two lines to make three columns. Okay, I got three columns. And okay, you're gonna title each column. So one column you're gonna put fears. One column you're gonna put in, in insecurities. One column you're gonna put inadequacies. Insecurities. If you're not sure what those the insecurities mean. Look it up in the dictionary. If you're not sure what inadequacies mean, look it up in the dictionary. Okay. You will then all right, list. I got them. Okay. You will then list all your fears, all your insecurities, and all your inadequate, all the things you feel inadequate about, in the three okay. columns. This requires brutal honesty. Okay. okay. This is just an exercise between you and yourself. So be brutally on honest. On paper. On paper. Okay. 
once you get them jotted down, okay, you go through each one of them. You go through all the fears. What you have to determine is if this fear is a valid fear backed up by an experience that I had, or is it an imaginary fear? Okay, I hear you loud and clear on that one. Or Um, that's supported by numbers. I do know that... I'm sorry. Go ahead. So I just want to say, you have to determine whether it's a a valid fear backed up by a supported experience, or is it an an imaginary fear not supported by anything? And and I, I appreciate what you're saying there, because I've had those imaginary fears, and I catch myself every now and then. Okay. So when you go through that list... You take the ima- okay. once the ones you determine are imaginary fears. You cross out because we're not going to spend our energy on imaginary fears. We want to focus on the real fears, and these are things okay. that are supported by experiences that you've had. And okay. you do the same thing with insecurities. You do the same thing with inadequacies. We want to get to the core ones, the ones that are supported by our life experiences. Okay. This exercise is called validating your feelings. And the reason I want you to go over them. Go ahead. We're going to, yeah, this is a two-part exercise for you. So the first part is getting them down on paper and then whittling the number down to just the validated ones. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Now, Go over them with my counselor. <laughs> once you get them, you know, whittled down to just the validated ones, then you go through those one by one to confirm. And usually there's an experience that you can associate to those feelings. Okay. And if you can't come up with an experience that you can that can you can associate with those feelings, then you have to consider taking that off the list. Okay, so basically, I got to dig deep and be 100% brutally honest, and and eliminate the ones that are fake, and then challenge the ones that are real. Right. The reason I want you to do this exercise is because when you start, when a person starts saying that they have anxiety and they have anxiety about everything, okay, yeah. they have to learn to whittle that down. Because my interpretation when someone says I have anxiety about everything, wait a second, are you saying that you're anxious about removing the covers off of you when you wake up in the morning and putting your slippers no. on? And exact, well, see, you said everything. I mean, a good part of my life. Um, okay, but, um, yeah, but no, I'm not afraid to get why out I want of you to, That's why I want you to do the exercise, to get used okay. to learning to whittle things down so what you deal with what's real and validated, and you don't get okay. used to saying everything, a lot of things. No, you can be specific, clear, and to the point about what you feel anxious about, what you feel afraid of, what you feel insecure about, what you feel inadequate with. Okay. And this little exercise on paper helps you do that. Okay? Perfect. No, no, it makes a lot of sense, actually. All right. So. 
Okay. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Tell you what, when I hear Michael D. from Redwood Shores talking about getting deep and brutally honest, uh, the producer over here wants to say welcome to treatment, my friend. You know who I got that exercise from? Uh, Neil Krosky. Nope. Felix Arroyo, one of my okay, main Felix trainers. Arroyo. That's one like. <clears throat> um, and it has uh, served me well. Well done. It's a great. We've done it as a uh, group exercise for everyone to, to participate, and then just in documenting those things, and then taking them back. You know, folding up the paper, putting it in your back pocket, and then when you're, you know, you get some alone time or whatever, or do it together with somebody else. And but you, but the key is being brutally honest. Yeah. It won't work if yeah. you're surface honest. You got to be brutally honest. That's right. Yourself. That's right. Well. Great exercise to pass along. You're out of time, so I'm going to cut you off unless there's anything else you must say. Speak now or forever hold your peace. I, I think I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Well, great show. Great show indeed. We appreciate everybody who called in uh, just to listen or anyone who's been listening on the podcasts when they have a free moment. And uh, as always, we appreciate everybody who called in to participate in the Recovery Sport Time segment. Uh, the ongoing support is much appreciated, and it's all of you out there, which is the reason why we do this. Uh, hopefully, we will be back in a couple of weeks. And in the meantime, we wish everybody a productive couple of weeks and a safe and fun couple of weekends. We will catch you later.
That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Until then, baby, are you